This is Van Cochran, co-founding and senior pastor at Vineyard Church Northwest. The message you're about to hear is from Romans 12, verses 3 through 5. And the, the main thrust here is how to steward well the vision God's given you so that you can steward well the gifts that he's given to you. Now, if you're a Steelers fan or here in Cincinnati, if you hate the Steelers, you're going to want to make sure you listen to the whole message so you hear my last illustration. Enjoy. Morning, everyone. Hey, I thought I'd start with a joke or two this morning. It's been a while, I know, I know. They're hard to find. All right, uh, so this guy... Um, He's, he's talking and he says, the other night I was watching TV with my wife and suddenly she said, you haven't heard a word I've said, have you? And I thought to myself, that's an odd way to start a conversation. <laughs> okay, it might've been the same couple. They went for marriage counseling, and one week the husband got there a little late, and so the, the wife and the counselor had, had just a moment to talk, and the counselor said to the husband, he kind of confronted the husband, and he said, your wife just told me that you never bought her flowers. And he looked up and he said, to be honest, I never knew she sold flowers. All right, now the next story I'm going to share with you isn't funny. It's a little more serious than that, but let's pray, okay? Father, um, we thank you for laughter. Thank you that uh, there's so many things in life that uh, just turn, turn our hearts to humor and, and, we, and we get to laugh. Thank you for joy. Thank you for joy in your presence. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us today through this passage of Scripture that we're going to focus on. And uh, we open our hearts to receive from you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, my first experience in church leadership came about a year or so after I, I had become a Christian. So I was maybe 21 and a half or so, pushing 22. And uh, I, I was attending the small church that I had grown up in my hometown, 50 people, a little Baptist church. And um, I, I was already a Sunday school teacher, so they asked me to become the Sunday school superintendent which I thought was a good thing. I felt honored that they asked me to do that, so I said yes. Then uh, shortly after that, they came to me and asked me if I would serve as a deacon in the church. And I said yes once again. Any of you who have been part of a little small church, you know how this goes. Then a uh, little while after that, they asked me to be a trustee. And I said yes, and I'm, I'm feeling all honored by all this. Boy, was I dumb. And they asked me then to be the lay moderator of the church, which means I ran all the church meetings. I'm like 21, 22 at the most at the time. And then the other two deacons and the other two trustees all resigned because they were worn out. And at the same time, the pastor of the church was stricken with a very serious, lifelong, debilitating illness. And he kind of faded out of the picture. And that left me in, as the sole leader of the church. Now, I soon found out why those other guys had to resign, why they were so tired and worn out and, and where the stress all came from because there was a tremendous amount of division in the church and a lot of gossip and people holding grudges against each other. And in my time of leading there, I, I tried to figure out what, what that, where that all came from and I traced it back to something that had happened just a few years uh, earlier. 
it seems that the Sunny Sisters group, which was an ill-named group, let me say that at the beginning. <laughs> the Sunny Sisters had raised money to put new carpet in the Sunday school area. And it just happened that when the carpet was going in, uh, the president who had had the idea and raised the money was leaving office and a new president was coming into office. And so somehow this new president got credited with this project, or at least in the eyes and the mind of the outgoing president, this new president of the Sunny Sisters took credit for something that she had done and she took offense to that. And she nursed that offense, and she allowed bitterness to grow in her heart, and a feud began, and a feud started between the two of them. And then anytime that happens, you know, friends kind of collect around one or the other. And now, there were a lot of people in the church that were not part of the feud, okay? But, but there was a significant enough number that were that it disrupted the whole place. Now, I had grown up going to Sunday school there. I was a favored son of the church. I mean, I was one of the kids that was doing good. So I was, I was favored by both sides. So not, none of the angst actually was directed at me personally. But boy, was there angst there. Was there offense there and pain there. All, all due to someone taking offense. And that story is totally true that I just told you. But this is also true. The people who were mad at each other were not horrible people. They weren't evil. They, they were good people. Some couple of them had taught me Sunday school as a little boy. I learned, learned about Jesus from them. And they would, they would serve you. They would do things for you. But they, they had this offense against each other that they couldn't get past, which was in and of itself an evil thing, although they weren't evil people. They had fallen prey to one of Satan's great traps. And they, they didn't even know it. But that trap is, you didn't honor me the way I think you should have, and I am offended, and I'm going to hold that against you. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, says this. It says, when you get angry, deal with it the right way that very day. If you hold on to anger overnight, it becomes rooted and gives the devil a foothold in your life. So... Anger isn't all sin. If someone's going to harm my wife and anger rises up within me, then that gives me the strength and the, the um, courage to do something about it, to defend. But if we hold on to anger, especially when we hold on to anger, there are other ways anger can be sin, but especially when we hold on to it overnight, it begins to spoil our hearts. It becomes an offense that takes root in our hearts. And uh, the book of Hebrews says that when there's a, a, a root of bitterness in a person's heart, it defiles many. You see, the roots of bitterness in our hearts don't just impact us, they impact everyone around us. And so how do we avoid this? The, the, the passage we're going to read today from Romans 12, it's, we're going to read verses 3 through 5, really give us um, a, a key to how to avoid this trap of offense and how to live in, in a healthy way with other believers and honoring Jesus. But before we read it, I just want to draw to your attention this, that the two previous verses have two main messages. One of them is give yourself entirely to God. Just put your body on the altar. You're his, okay? And so for any Christian, that's the call. That's the dedication. That, that's, that's what we are to do, our part. Just, God, I am totally, completely yours. 
Then the second thing those two verses tell us to do is to renew our minds. And renewing our minds means I learn how to think the way Jesus thought. I learn to allow the Holy Spirit to change my wrong thinking, to uncover it and change it so that it aligns with biblical thinking. Because Jesus always thought the way the Father designed us, designed him to think. And so it's learning how to think the way Jesus does. And I want to say this, one of the first results, one of the first evidences of a renewed mind is humility. That's what this passage says. So uh, he's just said those two things, give yourself to God as as an offering and then renew your mind. Now this passage bridges between those two commands and a, a, a couple of verses that talk about the gifts that God gives us, Holy Spirit given empowerings for us to serve him. And so here's the bridge. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself or herself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment or think soberly as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Or you could say, since God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So this whole idea of humility, of not thinking more of ourselves than we should, thinking with sound judgment, Let's just start off by saying this. That means I am going to accept what God says about who I am. It means that. God says you're a son of God. If you've accepted Jesus into your life, you're a daughter of God. Bible says you're righteous. You are no longer a sinner, but you are at the core of your being. Your identity is now righteous. And so I accept those things. That's thinking soberly. Bible says that God has given us gifts spiritual enablings so his power can flow through us to bless the church the body of christ and to expand the kingdom of god and so i accept that so the bible is is the groundwork for how we think soberly how we think rightly and this whole idea of the renewed mind is the key and in in thinking all of those thoughts about who i am i think this i am neither above nor below others. In fact, let's just put comparison out of the picture entirely. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, it's foolish when we compare ourselves to others. And so Paul is saying that here in in kind of a different way. But uh, by, by saying, think, don't think more highly of yourselves than you should. So not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Uh, he's warning us against self-importance. And uh, it, when, when we take on this airs of self-importance, where we, we can become haughty. We, we can become more deserving than others. If I think of myself more than I am, then I think, well, I deserve this and this and this, even though they don't deserve that. And so it's, it is comparison. We become easily offended, and we do compare ourselves to others. And when we compare ourselves to others, that's just not wise. It's just not smart. And so this whole thing of self-importance, of comparing to others, you know, it was something the apostles are, uh, dealt with all the time. 
not successfully. They argued continually throughout the ministry of Jesus about which one of them was greatest. And sometimes it's the most inopportune moments, but this happened over and over again. One occasion, Jesus is telling them, he says, look guys, I'm gonna pour my heart out to you right now. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. The chief priests and the elders are gonna take me. They're gonna beat me and they're gonna crucify me. He tells them all of that. And do you know what the very next thing that happens is? They get into an argument about which one of them is gonna be greatest. See, when we, when, when we elevate ourselves above what we should be, which means we're comparing ourselves to others and, and assuming that we are a, ahead of them or above them, when we do that, we become blind to the needs of others around us. I mean, how could they not have at least looked at Jesus and said, oh man, I'm so sorry. I mean, how could they have not somehow empathized with what, what, he, was, what he was going through? But... This whole idea of self-elevation and self-importance blinds us to seeing what others do. On another occasion, they're walking down the road, and they're mumbling, and their voices are getting more and more intense because they're arguing again about which one of them is greatest. And Jesus, either through a word of knowledge or just because he was a smart guy and they were pretty predictable, uh, he knew what they were arguing about. So he stops and he says, turns to them, he says, what are you guys talking about? And none of them would answer him because they were all embarrassed because of what they were arguing about. So they knew in their hearts that this was wrong, but somehow there was something else within them that was driving them to, to have these arguments about who was greatest. What Jesus said to them on that occasion is this. Jesus said this, he said, who is greater? This is Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it the not, not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. He's saying, look, in this world system, the master, the person who's being served is the greater. But what am I doing? I'm not reclining. I, I am here to serve. You know, in John 13, the night before he was crucified, it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had put all things in his hands. And what that means is simply knowing that he was king of kings and lord of lords, knowing that he was the creator himself, knowing that he had existed for eternity, part of the Godhead, and he was going back to Godhead. Knowing all of that, Jesus stood up and disrobed and wrapped a towel around himself and washed the feet of the apostles. And I look at that and I say, how is it that Jesus being who he was and fully conscious of who he was. And if anybody could have ever said, I'm above you, it would have been him. How is it that he could be content just to wash the feet of the apostles? How is it that he could have this incredible vision for what God had for his life and, and know in, 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 his, in, in, in his growing adulthood, he would have been fully aware of who he was because at the age of 12, he knew that God was his personal father and that he had a special call in his life. And here he is throughout his whole 20s knowing he's gonna do something, the most spectacular act of service to God and humanity that has ever been done or ever will be done. And yet he's just content and happy as can be to be at serve as a carpenter. All those years, just serving as a carpenter. I mean, how many of us, if we have that big vision, aren't thinking, oh, we gotta get, I gotta get after it. 
I'm going to jump into it right now. Why wait? Let's go. But Jesus was just content. And, and I want to suggest this to you. He could be content like that, even though he knew who he was and what he was going to do and where he was headed. He could be content by that because he understood what it means to say, I am living for your glory. You know, we sing that song often, I'm living for your glory. And a couple weeks ago, I w- woke up in the morning, and th- that was going through my mind as, as I came to consciousness that, that I'm living for your glory, I'm for your glory. And I started meditating on that and thinking about it, and it just became clearer to me. I mean, I would have known these truths before, but it just became clear to me that the, the primary way we glorify God is not through doing something big. It's not through having a great vision or a great call or fulfilling myself. The primary way we glorify God is every moment of every day. I'm for your glory. What what does that mean in my relationship with my wife or my coworker or this other crazy driver right now? I'm for your glory, God. I'm for your glory right now. And when we can begin to see that and the joy that comes through that, see, Jesus understood that. He understood that joy in life comes from living for God's glory every moment, every day, in every relationship, and in every circumstance. See, people like uh, Billy Graham, you know, I, I never talked to him, but I'm pretty sure he didn't gain great satisfaction by filling stadiums. You know, he was satisfied in life because he was living for God's glory before the stadiums. Someone like Mother Teresa, she didn't finally make it when her face was put on the front of what, Time Magazine or some other magazine. And now she could be at peace because she had done the great thing. No, no, she, she had peace because she was living for God's glory prior to that. And so what if the greatest way we glorify God isn't by doing something big. It isn't by leading a thousand people to Jesus or building a humongous church or even going to Africa and or to some other part of the world where the gospel is needed and, 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 and serving there sacrificially. Maybe the greatest way we glorify God is just today, right now, what I'm thinking as I sit here right now. Maybe the greatest way I glorify God is when I start to get discouraged. I just say, yeah, God, I'm going to trust you with this. You know, if I'm worried, well, what if this happens or this? Well, God, if either one of those things happens, it's going to be okay because I'm going to be with you. What if that's the greatest way we glorify God? And what if this, what if I can't do anything for God if I can't do that? I think that's all wrapped up in what Paul's saying here when he says, don't think too highly of yourself. You know, when we think too highly of ourselves, we, 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 we compare and we become offended easily or we kind of give up and turn in on ourselves and live with incredible anxiety as to whether or not we're accepted by others. Either one of those is still thinking too much of myself. You know that it is. It's not like one is pride and one is humility. No, they're both pride because they're both denying who God is and they're both, they're both saying, well, God, you might say that uh, I'm the head, not the tail, but I feel like the tail. And so I'm just gonna sit here and sulk and I'm just gonna say, what a loser I am. I did it again. What a loser I am. And God said, no, you're not a loser. You're not. And, and yet I'm, I'm disagreeing with him. That's pride when I disagree with God. And so I, I, I just bring this to you. What if this, this whole idea of living for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, do everything for God's glory. What if that is the key to us 
doing anything else for him? And what if, if, even if I get to do something great, what if it's not great because my heart is not rooted in this daily, daily commitment to his glory? What if it's not great really in God's eyes? You know, I'm speaking to people here, I think right now, who really have a desire to serve God and to be used by God. And in this context, he is talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that's proper and appropriate. But it applies also to things like, like um, finding the perfect job. Hate my job. If I could just find the perfect job, I would be a happy person. You know what? I can just about guarantee you, if you can't find peace where you are now, you're not going to have peace when you get to the new place. Uh, what, what, if, um, what if you have your, your heart set on a new house? And if I just had a bigger house, if we just had a room for all of our kids and we had a big family room, then boy, I would be at happy and peace. I, I, would, be peace. I would be at peace and happy. And I, and I just want to say, you know, if you're not at peace and happy with a small house, you're probably not going to be with the big house either. And I'm not saying that having a big house isn't good. That'd be a good thing. But it's not going to satisfy your heart unless your heart is rooted in being satisfied by living for his glory every day, moment by moment. And uh, what if marriage? What if, uh, what, what, if, what, if, what if you're eager to be married and you're thinking, oh, if I was just married, then everything would be good and, and I would be satisfied in life. You know, if you're not content single, you probably won't be happy married. That's Lori's story, part of my wife's story. Before she got saved, she was engaged, not to me, to another guy. And um, then Lori got saved, and she wanted uh, her fiancé to come to know Jesus, too. And he took her, she took him to some Bible studies, different things like that. But it just became clear that that not, was his, not his interest. He was not headed the same direction she was. And she very courageously ended the engagement. Now, after that, then, she went into a period of wondering, am I going to find someone to marry? Am I going to get married? Am I going to be happy through finding someone to get married? And part of Lori's testimony is that she had to go through that season and become content single before we, brought, we came together. And so when, when Paul says this, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. All of these things are, are wrapped up in this. Now, he goes on and he makes the counterstatement, think so as to have sound judgment. Again, I, I talked about the renewed mind and how the renewed mind uh, shows itself through humility and sound judgment. But sound judgment means think in terms of reality. And you might be saying, I am thinking in terms of reality. I don't have enough money. No, that's not reality. Reality is what's God doing in your life. What's God saying? How's God working in you right now? So let me illustrate reality, all right? I am five foot 11, 190 pounds, give or take. Lately, it's been a little more give than take. But um, reality or not? Reality, that's the truth, that's the reality. All right, how about this? I have the physical physique of a, you know, a, a bodybuilder. Reality? Not reality. How about this? A lot of people say I'm better looking than uh, Tom Brady. <laughs> I know that one's questionable. You could go either way there. Yeah, yeah. Now, the thing is, uh, spiritual truth is reality. Sound judgment means not too high, not too low. 
both are pride. Difficult balance to find, to accept and pursue God's call in your life, to accept God's vision for you, to embrace it with your whole heart and to go after it with all your energy, and at the same time, not to hold on to it as if you own it. See, that's one of the things, when he lists these gifts in the next couple verses, one of the, one of the takeaways from these verses to introduce that is, hey, you get this great gift. Holy Spirit's going to work in you and through you, through that you using that gift, but it's not yours. Don't hold it too tightly. Don't act like it originated with you or somehow you earned it or you deserved it. It is a gift. And so it's, it's just difficult to, to find that balance, but it is possible to find that balance. And you know how we do? I believe the way we find that balance is to say, God, I want to do everything you've called me to. But right now, I need to be patient with this waitress who's not doing a good job. That's how I'm going to glorify you right now. And I'm going to be happy to do that. I'm going to be satisfied to do that because that's where you have me right now. That's what you've called me to right now. It is living for his glory every moment that becomes the foundation and the basis for everything we do in life and the fulfillment of the dreams that God's given us. Now, sometimes God gives us a dream and then he kind of like takes it back and, and he wants us to give it back to him. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Abraham who had received a promise from God that he was going to be the father of a mighty nation and that his nation was going to bless all the nations of the world. Pretty big deal, right? Pretty big promise. And it was through his offspring that that was going to happen. And so they're waiting. Ten years go by, no kids. Another ten years go by, no kids. Ten more years go by, no kids. So they decide to take matters into their own hands and Abraham has a baby through his wife, Sarah's uh, servant. And boy, did that mess their family up. <laughs> and we still bear results of that in, in the world, intentions in the world today. But they eventually come to a point when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. See, sometimes God wants to do things in a way that everybody's going to look at it and say, oh, that was God. No question about it. You do not have the talent to make that happen. <laughs> that has to be God. That was one of the words spoken over this church uh, right at the very beginning. It was, when this church is birthed, no one will wonder who its daddy is. Because it's going to be God doing it. And so Abraham, they have this boy now, Isaac, and he's their pride and their joy. And he's the one that's going to bring about the promise. He's the son that is going to uh, be the father of the nation and bless all the nations. And then God speaks to Abraham one day and he says, Abraham, I want you to take that son. He called him your only son, but what he meant, your unique one of a kind son, even though he had another son, this was the son of the promise. I want you to take your son of the promise I want you to take him up on that mountain, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. I want you to kill him. Now, the Bible tells us that Abraham marched up that mountain with his son, and the New Testament tells us that Abraham did this all because he believed God could raise the dead. So Abraham's thinking, okay, if I go through this, God's going to raise him back to life. But what he had to do was to take that dream God had given him, that promise, that vision God had given him, and he had to lay it down. He had just had to lay it down, not knowing, not knowing for certain if he was going to get to pick it back up again or not. But of course, it was never God's intent that Abraham would kill Isaac. But in that culture, it was something that people thought gods might ask of you. 
And so as Abraham has the knife raised above Isaac, an angel appears and says, do not harm the child. And so what we look at there is we see that Abraham had to go through this process of seeing the dream die, of offering it up so that it was clear that he wasn't holding on to it as if it was his own, but it was God's dream. And when he did that, you know, when you come to those moments, clarity comes. When you come to those moments that you have, this is going to happen, it's going to be awesome, I'm so excited about this, God told me it's going to happen, and then something happens and you think, whoa, wait a second, maybe that's not going to happen. Or more specifically, sometimes God just says, okay, I want you to lay that down, lay it down. And you lay it down, not knowing if you're going to pick it up again. And when you lay it down, clarity comes. Everything becomes clear. And suddenly you're no longer mesmerized by the beauty of the dream or the vision, but you see God. And you see how good he is and how beautiful he is and how he satisfies our hearts every moment of every day if we're willing to just take up that, that, that mantra, I'm, I'm going to live for your glory. I'm going to live for your glory. I'm going to live for your glory. And then every moment we're living for his glory and the peace comes and the joy comes. And then when the big thing happens, eh, really happy that this happened, but I'm living for your glory already. I'm living for your glory already. And so he calls us to that. And, and, and when he says that we're to think with sound judgment, all of this fits in. Now, I had a moment of clarity when we were moving from Michigan. Uh, for those of you that don't know our story, we had been, I had been, a fundamentalist pastor for 15 years where we denied the gifts of the Spirit, didn't believe they were alive. And throughout 1993, I had a kind of this revolution in my thinking and my theology shifted so that in 1994, I finally concluded that the Bible did not teach that the gifts of the Spirit were dead, but that they were still alive. And Lori and I both said, okay, if that's true, we've got to find out what that means. We've got to go wherever we have to go to find out what that means. So we end up at a conference and um, at this conference, we met the people from Champaign, Illinois, Happy and Diane Lehman and several people from their church staff. And throughout the week, Lori and I decided, okay, we're going to move to Champaign, to the vineyard there, where we can learn about the Holy Spirit and about the gifts of the Spirit. And so now, I like adventure, I like risk, I like change, and so my heart is more and more building that direction, and I'm excited about this and really thrilled with it. And we get this fantastic prophetic word on Friday of the conference, and so we're, I'm pumped. We're moving, to, we're moving to Champaign. And then on Saturday, I bumped into a prophet, a guy named John Paul Jackson, who if, you're, if you know prophetic circles, a very well-known prophetic voice who uh, recently went to be with the Lord. And... Um, he asked me you no know, questions about myself, and I just told him where we were and what we were doing. I didn't tell him we were moving to Champagne, but he looked at me and he said, "Stay in the land of your anointing." He said, "Rent a place, and they'll come to you." Now I had already decided I wanted to get out of that place, and I took what he said to mean, "Stay where I am." Now that was a good good people there. But it was a small town of 10,000 people, and I didn't want to be part of another church split in a town of that size. I didn't want to do anything like that. But so I, was, I just immediately, my face fell, and he could see how discouraging that word was to me because when he said it, I really felt God's presence just rush over me. 
And so I'm thinking, oh my, we're not moving to Champaign. We gotta stay there. And I wanna get out of there. And that night during worship, this raucous, wild, incredible worship's happening. And I'm sitting, I sat the entire time just with my head in my hands, just um, depressed and just shaken by the whole thing, not knowing what to think, confused and, and just, ugh. So that night, that's, that's how I was until the next day we're flying home. And when we flew across the Mississippi River, which I think there is something to territorial spirits, that there's authority they have over territories. But flying across the Mississippi River, this, fine, this suddenly came to me. Wait a second. If that's where Jesus wants me to be, then that's where he's going to be for me. And so that's where I want to be. And that's going to be a good place to be. If that's what God's saying to do, then why would I be discouraged by that? That's going to be awesome to be there. And, you know, I've, people have tried to, tried to interpret that word he gave me a number of different ways. And I just leave it like this. Either I don't know, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Maybe it's going to happen sometime that that word is going to become the thing that determines a big decision I make. Or maybe God just wanted me to give the dream up. Maybe God just wanted me to lay that thing down that I had already fallen in love with and was holding on to as if it was my own. Because we did eventually move to Champaign. And we tried. We went back to Owasso. And uh, it was a great little town and great people. But we went back there and tried to find a place to rent. That's what he told us to do. And we had a limited amount of time because we had to be out of the parsonage. And in the whole city, I could not find a place to rent for my family, let alone finding a place to rent for um, a church to start. And so we ended up moving to Champaign. But I think God does things like that with us so that we recognize it's his, it's not mine. And really the bottom line is, if I'm going to be living for his glory every moment of every day, then what difference does it make where I'm living when I do that? If that's going to be my joy and my excitement and my thrill in life, then what difference does it make? I need to be where he wants me to be, and that's going to be a really, really good place to be. So he goes on and he says, um, this is because God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, a couple thoughts in that. One is this, that other people are gifted around you too. So don't, don't put yourself above them. Because it's God who's allotted to each one their measure of faith, meaning the gift they have and the position they have in, in the church body. So why would you look at yourself and compare yourself to them when God's the one who's given it to everybody? So he's saying that for one thing. But he's also saying here that God gives an allotment of gifting to each one of us. We're going to talk about this next week when we look at these key gifts. But this, this whole idea of according to a measure of faith, it, he's not like saying that we get different levels of believing in God, but what he is saying here is that God allots to us a measure of faith. And that measure of faith means the gift I have and the amount of anointing on that gift, the, the, the effect it will have. That's why some people preach and they preach with all their heart and with, with under the anointing of the Holy Spirit to 200 people. Some preach to 1,000, some preach to 20,000 because there's a different, a different measure of, of what's gonna happen through that. And we don't look at each other and say, oh, that one's so big, I wish I was like that. 
or that one, you know, we don't do that. He's saying, don't do that. Don't compare yourself to others. And so this, this measure of faith, allotment according to a measure of faith, it means the gift or gifts you receive, the Holy Spirit anointing on those gifts, which means his power in them and through them. And then oftentimes the target is involved in that. Uh, you, you could have a gift of, um, I'll say, teaching, and you could be called to teach children, or you could be called to teach um, single parents, or you could be called to use your gift with um, a, a certain ethnic group. And, and so there's a target also, and sometimes even a place is included in that, that measure of faith. But the whole thing is this. It comes down to this. It's not that. That's not the place I get my joy or my peace or my satisfaction in life. It is by living for his glory on a daily basis. And so um, all of this, this whole idea of having a renewed mind, it, here's why. Here's why this is important. Because you are designed for the gift God gave, gave you. You are designed for that gift. Look, if you're six foot six and you weigh 220 pounds, you're not designed to be a sumo wrestler. You're designed to be a basketball player or maybe a volleyball player, but not, not a sumo. And so there's, there's makings of how he designs us that fit the gift he's given us. And when I find that gift he's given me and I begin to just say, oh, Jesus, this is now part of me glorifying you day by day and living for your glory is engaging with this gift it's just going to fit me. It's going to fit me like a hand in a glove, and there's going to be added joy then because I am already have this foundational basis of glorifying God moment by moment, and now I have a, a, a clarity as to the gifting he's given me. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the very end of it says this. And that, that I'm reading this because it introduces the passage we're looking at. And he said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, okay? The renewing of your mind then enables you, then you'll be able to experience and agree with God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. A renewed mind is able to see, this is the gift God's given me, and wow, is it awesome. Whether it is administration or mercy is one of the gifts, or prophecy, or whatever it is, God's given me this gift. It's perfectly suited for me. It's perfectly pleasing to me. And it is incredible and awesome. And here's the whole thing. Whether you're in a, situ in a situation in life or a stage of life where maybe you've been asked to lay something down, a dream down. And let's broaden this out to say you have a dream for your children. Well, let's say even you have a dream for your career and you're sure that it lines up with God's will for your life. We can broaden it out from actually just ministry and using the gifts to a lot of different areas in our lives. But maybe God has you in a season like Abraham when he was walking up that mountain thinking, okay, I gotta, I gotta give this dream back to God. And if that's the case, I'm gonna pray for you this morning just for faith to rise up in your heart, for you to find strength and just joy right where you are right now by saying, I'm, I'm for your glory, God, and I'm going to let that be my joy, and I'm going to let that be the place that my heart rests. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says this, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. 
God's faithful. He gave you a vision. It's going to happen. Chill out. If you're in a waiting stage, that's okay. Keep waiting. But while you're waiting, realize the joy is not going to come in the fulfillment of that promise. The joy is going to come by you learning right now just to live moment by moment in his peace and in his joy by living for his glory every moment of every day. Now, um, not thinking too highly of ourselves. I want to end with an illustration. I hope you Bengal fans will forgive me for this, but this is a, a Steelers illustration. And um, their quarterback, Terry Bradshaw, in the 70s was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And in his induction speech, Bradshaw said, you know, some people say, I'm just an average quarterback on a great team. And he said, if that's the case, then so be it. He said, nobody, nobody gets where they are on their own. And then he went through a list of other great players on that team. You know, thank you, number 75, Joe Green. And thank you, number 88, Lynn Swan. And he named half a dozen other players on the team. You see, that's not taking yourself too seriously. If he took himself too seriously in what we call prima donna, then he would have been offended by that. He would have had to argue against that. And you see that happens so much today. But that's the type of attitude we're supposed to have. Not, not, not overestimating ourselves, not underestimating, but just here's who I am. I'm not going to compare myself to others because that leaves to me either being above or below them. Here's who I am. God's anointing is on my life. I'm living for his glory every moment of every day, and I'm expecting big things through him. I'm expecting good things from him. So let's, let's pray. Would you stand with me? I want to say this. If you know Jesus, God has good things for you. He has a vision for your life, gifts, power, serving him and serving others in a significant way. If you don't know Jesus, all that stuff is there for you too. He wants you to know him. That's why God created you was for this. He has been preparing you for this, and maybe he still is. But be at peace wherever you are. So, Father God, I, I, I come to you right now, and I pray, Holy Spirit, for your presence here in this room. Just be present with us. And I pray where, where there are wounds in, in hearts that put us in a continual cycle of feeling the need to say that we're less than you say we are. I pray for healing of those wounds. In Jesus' name. Heal, break off words that have been spoken that have been critical or condemning or limiting. And, and any of you that have a word that comes to your mind, maybe you remember a teacher saying, yeah, you'll never succeed, or a parent saying no to you at some crucial point in time when they should have said yes some other word that was spoken over you that limits your heart. Just lift that up to the Lord right now. I say in Jesus' name, be broken. Be broken in Jesus' name. Power of those words is broken. Any of us who are trapped in this thought that I, I have to compare myself to others and I keep coming back to that, I want to impress other people I pray freedom and release from that right now in Jesus' name. 
And Holy Spirit, I pray for a new, fresh anointing and revelation of what it means to live for your glory, to be for your glory every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.